Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 80, O Vens. At the start of the second day of the track and field events, Monday, August 3rd, the weather was still refusing to get into the Olympic spirit. Two rainstorms made their way over the stadium, leaving the track heavy. To be sure, there were other events outside the stadium, such as wrestling, the fencing part of the modern pentathlon, and a polo match on Mayfield. On a side note, the Germans, not sure what to make of polo, described it in their brochures as Ein Art Hockey Zut Pferde, a kind of hockey on horse. As for the stadium games, they managed to eke out the early rounds of the hammer and the 400 hurdles before the first rains came. It was the American, Glenn Harding, that was expected to take the gold in the hurdles, but for whatever reason, he was slower than his previous attempts. This allowed the German, Fritz Notbrock, to barely beat the time of the American and take the gold. This unexpected surprise lifted up the soon-to-be-drenched German spectators and added to their desire to see more contests before the day was out. Only by two o'clock did the rain stop, though the clouds remained, and at three it would be time for the 100-meter race. The citizens, not caring about the weather, had the structure packed early that afternoon, and there was only one reason for this. Jesse Ovens, the black American athlete, as he was slated to compete in the 100-meter, which would determine who was the fastest man on earth. Yet this time, they would not have to wait, as Jesse Owens would be in the first two heats to decide the winner. And despite the rain, the clouds, and the heavy track, when Owens came out of the changing room, underneath the stairs, he was his usual, unflappable self, waving to the crowds as if he was just taking a stroll. The locals, and everyone else for that matter, loved and admired the man even more for this. It was time for the first heat. Owens and the other runners approached their starting positions and began to dig their starting holes. Jesse seemed to be casually scraping the dirt away. The men took up their place. Up went the pistol. Auf, die Platz, Fertig, bang! And there it was again. The miracle that defied racing logic. Owens, unlike the other men, did not fully raise his head and torso until he was 30 yards from the starting point. But by then, it was practically over. Without seeming to strain or extend his steps, the young man simply pulled away from everyone else. Owens' teammate, Wyckoff, and the Swede, Strandberg, fell in behind Owens, who finished with a time of 10.4 seconds. Owens, after he slowed his pace, started smiling at his victory, but probably guessed, as did many sports riders that morning, that if not for the damp track, he could have beaten the Olympic and world record. But this race wasn't over. During the second heat, Metcalf, the other black American, won his race with a time of 10.5 seconds. Austin Darp, the Dutchman, was right behind him with 10.6 seconds, and then came Bachmeyer of 10.7 seconds. Alas, for the two British runners, the two authentic amateurs, neither qualified for the final race. 
As the runners rested, it was time for the hammer final. But just then, Hitler arrived in his box, which sent the crowd into a frenzy. After things calmed down, Erwin Blask, a German, prepared for his second throw. Probably hoping to impress his country's leader, Blask beat his first throw with a distance of 55.04 meters, a new Olympic record. The crowd roared again, Hitler applauded, and the ball of the hammer disappeared into the now soft ground. Then Karl Hein, another German, stepped into the circle. But here, the Führer's presence had the opposite effect. Plagued with nerves, Hein only managed to throw 52.5 meters. He was now in third place. In between the two Germans was the Swede, Fred Warngard. It was now time for the final round. But this time, Karl Hein got hold of his nerves and let the hammer fly, throwing three times. Hein shocked the world, and probably himself, with distances of 54.7, 54.8, and 56.49 meters. Now he owned the world's and Olympic record, which had just been broken by his countryman, Blask. And Blask's throw had broken the record that had been in place for the last 24 years. Upon this, Hitler allowed himself a wide smile, along with his applause. For the second time, the Germans walked away from a single event with the gold and silver. Next, it was the time of the women's 100 meter, slated to start one hour before the men's 100. The record for the women's 100 meter was currently being held by the Pole Stanislaw Walazowicz, and she was expected to take the gold again. Yet the American Helen Steffens from Missouri had, the year before, shattered the Poles' record of 11.9 seconds with a run of 11.5. But for whatever reason, the decision had not been ratified. Either way, this was shaping up to be a great lead-in to the men's final. Steffens easily won her heat with a time of 11.4. But again, this was not allowed to be the new Olympic record. As it had been judged, there had been a gentle following wind. When Wella Siewitz ran in heat two, she passed everyone with a time of 12.5. In the final, it was clearly going to be between the American and the pole. But as the race got off, Katrina Krauss of Germany stayed with the two leaders as long as she could. But then Wella Siewitz pulled away from her, but then Steffens pulled ahead of the pole. And that's how the race ended. Still, the spectators cheered the wild finish which only heightened the anticipation of the coming men's race. The six men of the 100-meter got into place. Owens was in lane one, Metcalf in lane six. In between them was Bachmeier of Germany, Sandberg of Sweden, Ossendarp of Holland, and Wyckoff of the U.S. Again, the 100-plus watchers all went quiet, their eyes fixed on the six men. Almost everyone then focused on Ossendarp, as he seemed to fidget, whereas the others were smoothly getting ready. When the gun went off, it seemed to be as loud as a thunderclap, so quiet had the entire stadium become. The runners took off. Only then did the crowd give in to their pent-up excitement and begin to scream. For the first thirty yards, the pack was just that, as the men stayed in a bunch 
But then, showing no overt exertion, Jesse Owens started pulling ahead. The crowd roared even louder with joy. But this time, Metcalf was not simply going to let Jesse have his way. He stayed closer to Owens than anyone else, just behind him. Yet, that is where he stayed, as Owens was the first to break the tape. His time was 10.3 seconds, tying the world and Olympic record. The crowd was delirious, yet Hitler was not. He, as had many Germans, wanted Bachmeier to take the race. But it was not to be. It was impossible for him to stay close to Owens or Metcalf. As for the nervous Ossendarp, he was so shocked to have won the bronze that he turned around and ran back the way he had come, almost at the same pace as his racing speed. But then all eyes went back to Jesse Owens. The people continued to cheer his performance. Later that day, when it was time for the distribution of medals, Hein got his first before Owens. Being a German, Heinz gave the Nazi salute to his leader, looking down on him. When Owens' time came, he simply bowed his head in thanks to the Nazi leader, who, in return, saluted back. Of course, neither man was invited to the Führer's box, as he had promised not to, in order to be fair to all the athletes. But the real question was, if he had met the winners, would he have shaken the hands of Jesse Owens? The answer came soon enough. Hitler, using the noise of the crowd as cover, said to those with him, The Americans should be ashamed of themselves, letting Negroes win their medals for them. I shall not shake hands with this Negro. In response, two men, Samer und Austin and Shira, both spoke up, saying it would be good for the games and a gesture to the United States if he would. But Hitler exploded. Do you really think that I will allow myself to be photographed shaking hands with a Negro? The matter was closed. It's quite possible, probably inevitable, that Hitler had, by this time, come under the influence of his own propaganda. How many times had he spoke on race issues? How many times was it written about, carried over the country's radio waves? The drip, drip, drip of a single constant message is just as effective as it is on the creator as it is on the target audience. As the International Press Corps watched from above, as Hitler saluted Owens, not one of them knew of his latest political-slash-military gambit. The war in Spain was heating up, mostly because Hitler and Mussolini had promised General Franco all the help they could give him. For his part, Stalin was doing what he could to help the legitimate government. First, he forced 120,000 workers to donate a part of their pay to the cause, and then had the Soviet Gossbank donate 500,000 pounds to buy weapons and supplies. However, Spain was not the subject that dominated British Permanent Undersecretary at the Foreign Office, Sir Robert Vassenthart's visit. Instead, he spent his days in Berlin talking to various German officials about communism. It had taken hold in Russia and now seemed to be in play in Spain. Sir Robert's question was, did Germany fear the communists? 
Rudolf Hess, deputy Führer, answered this question by taking Vassenart to the communist quarters of Berlin without guards. They were not only left alone, but did not receive a single grimace. Such had the communists there been cowed. Sir Robert's concern, based on his years of experience, was that no good could come of having such a large communist country, Russia, almost next door to fascist Germany, with only Poland in between them. That was bad enough for Poland, but was also bad for Europe as well. Surely they had to come to blows at some point, and Vassentart's quest was to seek out how the Germans felt about this. Unfortunately for him, the Germans were in full party mode and couldn't be bothered to discuss such weighty issues. It was a time of parties and rooting for your country's athletes. But it was Sir Robert's observations that have best served history. As for Foreign Minister Ribbentrop, the former champagne salesman, the Brit considered him shallow, self-seeking, and not really friendly. No one who studies his mouth will be reassured. As for General Goring, he was a man who enjoys everything, particularly his own parties. The world is his oyster, and no damned nonsense about opening it. No, it was Goebbels, the Nazi propaganda minister, that impressed the permanent undersecretary the most. He seemed the only one to have depth. I found much charm in him, a limping, eloquent slip of a Jacobin, quick as a wit, in quotes, and often, I doubt not, as cutting. Yet his meeting with Hitler was almost ruined before the two men came face to face. Der Fuhrer had been told that Visitart was a short, dark, Jewish-looking man. So when the six-foot-one, light-skinned politician showed up, Hitler was, at first, at a loss for words. Still, the German leader recovered himself and chatted with the man. Sir Robert found him very much in earnest, not humorous, not alarming, not magnetic, but convinced of a variable mission and able to impress himself so strongly that he impresses himself on those around him. Then Hitler attempted a tried-and-true tactic, but one also that demonstrated how much he misunderstood Britain. Hitler said, as if he was opening up his soul, that he did not want, that he did not seek a weakened British Empire, but rather a strong Germany to stand beside Britain, to deal more effectively with the world's problems. But the secretary did not fall for this. Even if he had, he would have been quickly disabused by the numerous Jews still in Berlin who found ways of getting to him to ask for help. In the end, Sir Robert was able to help a few leave the country through the Swiss Red Cross, but most stayed trapped. Those Jews that spoke to him also described their horror at how easily the foreigners had been tricked by the smiling Nazis. The next event would be the 200 meter, and all eyes were, again, on Jesse Owens. Besides his physical ability, the man came across as a warm, gentle soul and encouraged everyone, often slapping others on the back after a race or shaking their hands with a wide grin to go along with it. The heats to determine who would be in the final for the 200 meter were all won 
by Owens. He also set a new Olympic record in one heat with a time of 21.1 seconds. Amazingly, he tied that in the next heat, but only managed a 21.3 in the following one. Still, as another black American runner, Lawson Robertson, also came in with a time of 21.1, everyone knew the final would be something to behold. The final 200 meter was set for 6 p.m. The men began digging their starting holes. Competing against Owens were two Dutchmen, Austin Darp and Van Berven, the American Robinson, Hanny, a Swiss, and Lee Orr of Canada. When the gun fired, the two Americans and Ossendarp had the best start. But by the time they were in the final straight, Owens was just starting to pull ahead, and then kept on pulling further ahead. The audience quickly realized this, so focused on the other contestants, to see who would be winning the silver and bronze. It looked as if the excitable Ossendarp would pull it off, but during the last 20 meters, Robison kicked in whatever he had left and just managed to cross the tape ahead of the Swiss. Only then did the audience swing their eyes to the time board, and sure enough, Owens had just set another record with a time of 20.7 seconds. The crowd roared its approval. And yet the Germans did retain their loyalty to their own athletes. They just appreciated Owen's ability. Next was the long jump. And though O. Venz was participating, the locals couldn't help but hope that one of their own, Luz Long of Leipzig, would carry the day. Long had bested every German. Now it was time to see if he could best the American. To add on more pressure to Long, the U.S. team had won the gold every single time in this event except once. Could a German miracle be in the making? The pressure was indeed on Long. When it came time to the second-to-last jump, Long made it to the final with a distance of 7.84 meters. Owens advanced as well with a distance of 7.87 meters. Yet the crowd cheered Long as it seemed he at least had a chance to win the gold. But the question was, was Owens holding back, simply covering enough distance to stay competitive, saving his best for last? It was time to find out. Long went first of his first three jumps. His distance was 7.73 meters, not quite as good as his last jump. Was Owens tired out as well? When Owens went to make his first attempt, he did a no-jump, by overrunning the maximum distance before jumping. So Long went again, and the crowd sprang to their feet just as he landed, as they could tell by the markings that he had matched Owen's previous distance. A German miracle was in the making. The crowd continued to roar, but it grew even louder and longer as Owens walked over to Long and congratulated him. A true sporting gentleman. Then the cheering died away as Owens got into position. He waited patiently as the people took their seats. His look of concentration was obvious to all, and they respected this, as the 100,000-plus spectators went deathly quiet. Only after obtaining a perfect balance 
did Owens take off down the runway, then leaping into the air and seemingly extending his flight with a second mid-air kick. His distance was 7.94 meters. It was another Olympic record, but not a new world's record that still stood at 7.98. Again, the crowds cheered, but they were also dismayed, as all eyes turned to lose long. Simply, he would need the jump of his life to have any chance of beating the cheerful, encouraging, but superhuman Owens. As quiet as the viewers had been for Owens, they now seemed to barely breathe as Long readied himself for his last jump. It was the members of the British team that later commented that at that moment they could hear the flapping of the various nations' flags. Then Long dashed down the track, but as he leapt, the ruling was that he overran the jumping point. The crowd groaned, the sound rising up as it was released from tens of thousands of throats. There went Germany's hopes for a gold medal and a chance to take from the domineering Americans. Although he did not show it, appearing his ever outwardly calm self, Owens must have felt the pressure lift off him. But it must have made a difference as he started running down the track, taking his last jump. Again, the dash, the speed, again the mid-air kick. And this time, he did not land until he passed all the other markers. A new world's and Olympic record had just been set, as Owens had landed 8.06 meters from his takeoff point. The crowd still cheered through their disappointment, as the American had once again given them a show and an experience that would stay with them forever. The young man had just gained his third gold medal, and the U.S. still held dominant in the long jump. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 81, The Day of the Britons. The third day of the track and field events, Wednesday, showed the world what true amateurs could perform, as well as those who had coaches, time off to focus on their sport, and the support of their countries. That Wednesday, the weather was still cloudy and relatively cool, but perfect for the upcoming events. The example of the amateur athlete par excellence was the Brit Harold Whitlock, a manager of an auto garage. His event was the 50-kilometer walk, and though 32, married with three children, he found time when not working and help raising his children to get in as much practice as he could. And yet, he had no coach, no outside funds to help him prepare. In fact, when he went to the Berlin Games, he had to take time off from work and would not be paid for his time away. The only thing Whitlock had going for him was that he had seen a fair amount of Europe, so was not overawed by all the partying Europeans surrounding him. Well, that and his long legs and fierce determination. Whitlock and his two teammates, Joe Hopkins and Lloyd Johnson, had planned out their attack. They would stay together and purposefully behind any leaders to pace themselves and suss out their competition. And their competition would be fierce. 
Against them was T.A. Schwab of Switzerland, who currently held four world records. Stork of Czechoslovakia and Donlish and Bobenko of Latvia. The downside was that the British team did not get a chance to go over the course they would be taking. Indeed, almost up until the day of the race, they didn't even know where the course would take them, so would not be able to figure that into their attack. The 35 athletes took off, each one with his own strategy and confidence. The three Brits stayed together at first. But at the 15-kilometer mark, Hopkins found that he could just not keep pace, so fell back, apologizing to his teammates. Then, not too far further, Johnson found that he could not keep the leaders in sight. Whitlock was upset by this, but knew if he slowed down to keep Johnson with him, he would lose sight of the leaders as well, and he had no intention of losing anything. So he kept his current pace as Johnson fell back. But then trouble reared its ugly head as Whitlock made it to the 20-kilometer mark. Nowhere to be found was his British assistant, who was supposed to give the walker his glucose drink. Whitlock looked around frantically, but the man was simply not there. So, reaching into a pouch, he pulled out two glucose tablets that he had with him, all the while hoping the assistant would be up somewhere ahead to give him his drink. Turning his disappointment into anger, Whitlock picked up his pace, and soon the two leaders, Stock and Danlish, were just ahead. But Whitlock was suffering now. Thankfully, he spotted his assistant and reached for the drink as he went by. But in the cup was not his specially made drink. Instead, it was tea with condensed milk. Whitlock sipped it, found its sweetness revolting, and threw it to the ground. But he had no more tablets. Now he was very angry, angry at his teammates and angry at the assistant. He poured on more speed. Before too long, the Brit overtook Stork, who seemed to have given it his all. Whitlock kept his pace and his eye on Danlich. Here Whitlock used his experience and attempted to appear not to be struggling to catch up, but just trying to stay with the leader. But really, he was estimating what speed he would need to slowly catch up to the leader. This had worked in other races, so he stuck with his tried-and-true method. But before too long, it was evident to all that he was gaining on the leader. Yet Danlish did not seem to be responding, and he had been told of what was happening behind him. But he did not pick up his pace. Perhaps he was spent as well. Yet it could be a trick. Still, Whitlock found himself just behind the man, and so, taking a chance, pulled past him much earlier than he would have liked. By the 31-kilometer mark, Whitlock was in the lead. It was exhilarating, but surely Danlich had something up his sleeve. Not that it mattered after a few more steps, because then Whitlock finally felt the result of not having his glucose drink and was starting to feel the effects of what sweet tea with condensed milk he had consumed. Struggling on, Whitlock wondered if Danlich had his drink messed up too. Perhaps that's why he did not counterattack. Regardless, Whitlock's stomach was now a mess, which forced him 
to slow his pace. He would just have to hope that, one, he could finish the race, and two, that his lead would be enough to carry him through. But it was not. Soon word was given to him that Schwab, the Swiss, was closing in on him, and that Bubenko, the Latvian, was gaining on Schwab. Whitlock's stomach continued to give him trouble, forcing him to reduce his pace even more. As they passed by the next group of observers, Whitlock was told that his lead was down to 30 seconds, a mere trifle at the rate the walkers were going. Just then, his stomach gave a violent lurch, and out came whatever he had eaten that day, plus the sweet tea with condensed milk. Yet, when it was done, the nausea had passed. Whitlock picked up his pace. Though his training had all been on his own, Whitlock was determined to win, so his pace was increased even more. If Schwab wanted the victory, he was going to have to take it. When Whitlock left the open area and re-entered the stadium, the crowd rose to their feet, screaming. Did they see Schwab right behind him? The Brit couldn't worry about that now. Keeping up his own pace, he rounded the track and thankfully broke the tape, just knowing the Swiss was going to pass him at any moment. But he did not. Schwab took second, a minute and a half behind the winner. The other British athletes in the area rushed over to congratulate their gold medalist. Whitlock had just set a new Olympic record at 4 hours, 30 minutes, and 41.4 seconds. Buoyed by Whitlock, the British runners hoped against hope that they too could bring home the gold in the 400-meter race. Representing Great Britain were three solid runners, Godfrey Rampling, Godfrey Brown, and William Roberts. But now that they were here, they would have to face the two black Americans, Archie Williams and James Louval. During the eliminating heats, the British runner Brown had the misfortune to either run in the outside lanes of five or six. Yet his form and speed got him to the finals. Rampling struggled and made it to the semifinal, only to then lose a spot in the final. Brokenhearted, he cheered his two countrymen on. Also in the final was the American Archie Williams, who seemed to be the odds-on favorite. But Brown was determined to give Britain another gold medal that day. The race kicked off with Brown again in lane six, but nothing was going to stop him from breaking the tape first. And he got off with a very good start, actually taking the lead early on. But then Williams passed him and soon held a lead of three meters. Surely, with the American speed, there could be no way for Brown to overtake him. Still, he pushed himself, and he was gaining, coming ever closer to running beside Williams. Suddenly, Brown and everyone watching could see that the American had lost his force and was slowing down. Williams had given it his all and was just running on fumes now. Brown's rate of reducing the distance between himself and the American was increasing. But would it be enough? Coming ever closer to Williams, Brown watched as if in slow motion, as the finish line seemed to be rushing towards the American, who just managed to stretch out and break the tape first. Brown was just behind him. Had the course been five yards longer, he was sure he would have won. 
but the track ran out before he could pass the American. Due to fatigue and probably disappointment, Brown collapsed after crossing the finish line. But such was his condition and joy, he managed to rise a few seconds later to congratulate the winner, knowing the silver was his. The British team was feeling the excitement of having done so well so far. Could it happen again? They were about to find out. Next came the 110-meter hurdles. For Great Britain was Army officer Don Finley. But again, the specter next to him was an American, Forrest Towns. Towns, who was white, was very much appreciated by the German crowds. They seemed to have nothing against the black Americans as individuals. Owens was constantly asked for his autograph. But as a whole, the German population, and it must be said, many others, could not help but ask each other, how would the U.S. team be doing without their black athletes? Goebbels' newspaper, Der Angriff, was more upfront, though monumentally more reserved than normal, by printing, if the U.S. team had only white athletes, things would look badly for them. Long would have won the long jump, Lanzi the 800-meter, Ossendarp the 100-meter, and everyone would have considered the Yankees a great disappointment. Still, the British team could not but be hopeful as the men lined up for the 110-meter hurdles. The question was, was Finley's penchant for running cross-country courses at unusually fast paces about to pay off for himself and his country? Yet Finley would have to contend with not one, but two Americans, Towns and Frederick Pollard. As the gun went off, Pollard surprised everyone by getting the best start. Yet by the third hurdle, Towns had managed to catch up with him, with Finley close behind. By the fifth hurdle, the race seemed to be down just to the two Americans, but Finley wasn't giving up. His speed running served him well. The problem was, his feet weren't on the ground all that much to help him use his speed, but he pressed on. Towns pulled ahead, obviously about to take the gold, which would leave Pollard with the silver. But during the last two hurdles, Finley gave it his all, gaining ground in between his jumps. And just before crossing the finish line, Finley managed to eke by the American to take the silver. The crowd roared its approval at such an exciting race. The British team jumped up and down, knowing they were bringing another medal home. For the record, Town's time was 14.1 seconds, which set a new Olympic and world's record. However, just a few weeks later, while competing in Oslo, Finley demolished the world's record with a time of 13.7 seconds. One of the more bizarre events of that day was the pole vault. The U.S. team was favored, but the Japanese kept pace during the eliminating rounds. The event had started that morning, but as the Americans and Japanese battled throughout the day, many other teams had their athletes removed. The contest went on until darkness, which caused the floodlights to be used. About 30,000-plus from the larger crowd slowly became obsessed with watching the two countries go at each other, so they remained behind as the temperatures fell to uncomfortable lows. 
But in the end, American Earl Meadows took the gold with a height of 4.35 meters. He had touched the bar, but, as it had not fallen, was given clearance. The two Japanese athletes battling him all day, Nashida and Oe, both achieved a height of 4.25 meters. By digging deep into Olympic rules, Nashida was awarded the silver, Oe the bronze. But when the two men returned to Japan, they had their medals cut in half to make two half-silver, half-bronze medals. The only time this has ever been done. This was an Olympic example, something the various world sports clubs strove for. And yet the British had another chance for gold that day, during the 1,500-meter or metric mile. The Brit Sidney Wooderson, who had lost to New Zealander Jack Lovelock the last three times they met, was not dismayed, and he had trained hard for the Games. Yet he came into the contest with an ankle injury, hoping he had recovered enough. But during the various heats, Wooderson gave his all just to stop from being eliminated, though the pain was clear on his face. But it would be Luigi Bacali of Italy and the American Glenn Cunningham who would push Wooderson out and make their way to the final after the first four heats. For those who stayed current with this event, it was obvious that Lovelock, the New Zealander, was playing a careful but dangerous game by making sure he only ran fast enough to make it to the next heat. But this strategy paid off, and he was soon in the final. But for various reasons, including the extended time the pole vault took, the final would have to come Thursday, the fourth day. At four o'clock on Thursday, the men lined up to start the race. But then Hitler entered his box, surrounded by his entourage. It was customary when the host entered that country's national and Olympic flags be raised. The flags rose, the people cheered their leader, the attention then went back to the runners. The two German runners were expected by no one to win or to even medal, not with the likes of Bacali, Cunningham, and Lovelock on the track. So why did Hitler suddenly show up? Again, he was informed, as most hosts were, of when his country had a decent chance to win or bring home a medal. But as Bacali was from the only other European fascist country, it seemed that de Fuhrer was saluting Mussolini's man. After Hitler sat down, the crowd started chanting, Cunningham, Cunningham, as he was the crowd's expected winner. Everyone loves to back a winner. And indeed, as the gun went off, the American took the lead. The men would circle the track four times. And for the first two laps, others would come and go, if even just for a moment, to take the lead which caused the crowd to cheer for them even louder. But as the race settled down, it was clear that it would be between the American, the Italian, and the New Zealander. Just then, near the beginning of the last lap, Eric Nye of Sweden charged ahead, shocking everyone. The crowd was on its feet now, yet the pace was too much for him. Bercali surmised that his time had come and overtook the Swede, but his lead did not last long, as Lovelock, who the last time he had raced the dangerous Cunningham, had waited 60 yards 
before making his move. Decided it was not worth the risk this time, so kicked into a higher gear and passed Cunningham and Bacali. The question was, did he start his kick, still 300 yards away, too soon? Everyone roared as Cunningham poured on more speed, but was unable to catch the New Zealander. Nye continued to fall back, having spent his fuel, as the Italian stayed just behind the American, as if that was all he was capable of. Everyone cheered louder, as it was clear Cunningham had thrown in his last reserves. But Lovelock stayed ahead by five yards. This remained the top three positions until the tape was broken. A new world and Olympic record was set by Lovelock with a time of 3 minutes, 47.8 seconds. Cunningham's time was 3.48.4 seconds, and the Italian had a time of 3.49.2 seconds. By then, the crowd was hoarse from their screaming as the leader position changed so many times during the race. But nothing on the level of Olympic Games can go off without a hitch. When it came time for the women's high jump, Germany was to have three athletes, one being Gretel Bergman, a Jew, who had left for the United States when Hitler came to power. As previously covered, Bergman was removed from her local athletic club in Germany, but was then recalled to represent her native country during the Games. In all honesty, not only did Berlin sense that she had more than a decent chance of winning a gold medal, but when she was invited back, it quieted the storm that Nazi Germany was set against Jewish athletes. But as the event was now here, Bergman was nowhere to be found. The explanation, and it took some digging, became clear only after the games were over. Just two days before the games were to open, Bergman, currently in London, called the U.S. Consul General in Stuttgart to get a visa. They told her that they had received a letter from the German Olympic Committee saying that she would, in fact, not be asked to participate for Germany, as her qualifying attempts were subpar. This was complete poppycock, as she had jumps at least 10 centimeters higher than the next German female. Angered and shocked, Bergman called the president of the Jewish Athletic Organization in Berlin, who then complained to the German Olympic Committee. Their only response was to order the department head to report to the Gestapo twice a day, the idea being he would not then be able to flee and tell his story. By the time the high jump was over, the gold was won by Hungary's Ebola Sask, who jumped 1.6 meters. When Bergman had been qualifying, she had jumped 1.64 meters, if she had been allowed to participate and had been in good form, the Germans would have had another gold medal. As it was, they probably consoled themselves that she had been tricked into not jumping for the United States. As has also been covered, another German Jew, Helen Meyer, had also been asked to come home to represent Germany in the foil. She was allowed to participate and brought to her native country the silver. But when she was taking part in the crowning ceremony, Meyer gave the Nazi salute. The crowd went wild. Some had thought she had betrayed her race. 
Others were told that she came back to see her sickly mother. So a debate raged. Was she courageous for standing up to the Nazis? Or selfish for coming back and winning a medal for them, hoping to be made a full citizen again so she could be with her dying mother? The answer is probably somewhere in between. Meyer insisted that she only wanted to see her mother and had not asked for citizenship. Yet Nazi Germany was not the only country to be accused of denying Jewish athletes. For the upcoming 4 by 100 meter relay, the two Jewish runners of the American team were replaced on the morning of the event by Jesse Owens and Foy Draper. The excuse, if that word could be used, was that the Americans had heard that the Germans were going to pull a surprise by switching some of their runners. Now, obviously, Owens was the fastest runner in Berlin at the moment, but Sam Stoller, one of the Jewish runners, had also run the 100 meter in 10.3 seconds, which made him at least as fast as Draper. Still, the switch was made by the coaches, but few believed the reason given. So either Martin Glickman and Sam Stoller were replaced because they were Jewish, or that the American coaches wanted to win at any cost, even by ignoring these men who had earned their spots. The mood within the American team was ugly, to say the least. But now that the decision was made, everyone hoped it would be worth it. As the race started, Owens, who would start for the Americans, was in the unenviable lane four. Yet his typical start and speed gave the American team a lead of five meters. He then passed the baton over to Metcalf, who, with his speed, extended that lead to seven meters. He passed the baton over to Draper, who gained the team three more meters in their lead. Finally came Wyckoff, who, by the time he broke the tape, had managed to extend their lead to 12 amazing meters. As early as when Metcalf was running, it was clear who was going to win. Yet the Italian team ran hard and came in a respectable second. The German team had no real superstars, except perhaps for Bachmeier, who gained a lot of ground during his run. But it wasn't going to be enough to bring home a medal, as Holland's team was comfortably in third place. But just 30 meters from the tape, the excitable Ossendarp dropped his baton, which allowed the Germans to pull ahead and take the bronze. The U.S. dream team, if you will, broke the world and Olympic record with a time of 39.8 seconds. As for the Jewish runner Stoller, he would write in his diary that this was the most humiliating episode in his life. <laughs>